So as some of you might be aware, the title of this retreat is The Path to Awakening. And this idea of path suggests that we're on a journey together, a journey of discovery, or perhaps to borrow one of George's phrases from last night, we could think of it as a journey of wisdom and wonder. And last night, George shared some very powerful moments from his own life journey. And each of us, too, we can look at our own life journeys and see that over the course of the years, there's been many different twists and turns and ups and downs, challenges and rewards. And likewise, on retreat, even in these first few days, we might have noticed similar twists and turns and ups and downs because our life on retreat is really a microcosm of our life outside of retreat. So it's inevitable that at times our meditation practice runs into some rough terrain. And although this is completely normal, completely to be expected, Still, I think there's something in most of us that feels confronted when we do enter into those challenging phases of the journey. And even after years of practice, there can still be that inbuilt tendency to equate pleasant experiences with good meditation and unpleasant experiences with bad meditation. So when things get difficult, difficult or challenging, it's easy to think that we've done something wrong. And then we put a lot of effort in trying to work out how can we get back to that good experience, that pleasant experience we had yesterday or on the last retreat or a decade ago. So as one meditation teacher famously said, there's nothing that ruins the rest of your retreat quite so much as having a good sitting It sounds like you can uh, relate to that. So tonight I'm going to talk about some of the challenges that we can expect to encounter during a meditation retreat. The different kinds of afflictive mental states that can pull us off balance in various ways, at least until we learn how to manage them skillfully. And one very common challenge that comes up, especially at the start of a retreat, is having unrealistic expectations. Because these days, so many of us, we live lives that are frenetic, uh, frantically busy. And so often our bodies are tense, our nervous systems are amped up, we're agitated after months or years of constant stimulation. And yet somehow we still expect that we should be able to come on retreat after a super busy 51 out of 52 weeks of the year and just kind of flick a switch and boom, transcendent bliss, (laughs) instant peace, happiness. But for most of us, that's not what we usually experience in the first few days of a retreat. In fact, we often experience the opposite, all kinds of unpleasant physical and mental states. So to begin with, we do need to have a lot of patience, a lot of kindness. And I think it's worth highlighting that the Pali word that's usually translated as meditation more literally means cultivation. Cultivation. So we could think of what we're doing here as in some ways metaphorically cultivating the heart and mind. 
in the same way that we might cultivate a garden bed. And we might understand from that metaphor that if we want to grow fruit or vegetables or flowers, we can't just stick the seeds in the ground and then collect the harvest the next day. Instead, we have to carefully prepare the soil, take out the rocks and the weeds, add compost, and then plant the seeds or the seedlings. And after that, we still need to protect the plants from frost and hail and insects and other creatures that eat them. And we need to keep the plants mulched and watered and fertilized before eventually we can harvest the flowers and the fruits. So we might get a sense that this whole process, it takes care and it takes patience and it is a process. And we might accept that process in relation to gardening, but when it comes to our meditation practice, so often we want instant results. And this wanting instant results is a form of greed or craving, one of the three unwholesome motivations that Joseph mentioned the other night. And the downside of greed is that when we don't get the results we want, or we don't get them when we want them, we often get caught instead in hatred or aversion, which is another form of unwholesome motivation. So often we flip between greed and hatred, not noticing the distorted lens that we're viewing all of our experience through. And this distortion relates to the third unwholesome motivation, which is ignorance or delusion, that not seeing clearly, not understanding the truth of how things are. And on one level, it might be obvious that when we're caught in any of these three states, they're going to have a negative impact on our lives and also on our meditation practice. But precisely because they're all rooted in delusion, it's often very hard to see them when they're present. So in the trainings that the Buddha laid out in the Satipatthana Sutta, the four foundations or establishments of mindfulness, the Buddha invited us to train in recognizing the various ways that these unskillful states show up and interfere with clear seeing, with insight. In that sutta, he instructed us to really be on the lookout for five particularly unhelpful qualities of mind which together traditionally are known as the five hindrances. These five hindrances are sensual desire, ill will or aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness and remorse, and skeptical doubt. And I'll explain them in just a little more detail soon. But for now, just to mention that they're called hindrances because they hinder or get in the way of seeing clearly. And the word that's usually translated as hindrance literally means to cover or can refer to a veil or obscuration. So these hindrances are afflictive mental states that obscure insight and prevent us from making progress along this path to awakening. And not only that, but often they lead to harm, harm for ourselves and harm for others. So according to the suttas, the Buddha is reported to have said that these five hindrances, quote, overwhelm awareness and weaken discernment. And then when one's without strength and one's weakened in discernment, 
We can't understand what's for our own benefit, what's for others' benefit, and what's for the benefit of both. So this practice of bringing awareness to the hindrances, you could say it has an ethical component to it. It's grounded in the same commitment to non-harming as the five precepts that we undertook on opening night. So in the service of not harming ourselves, not harming others, we need to learn how to recognize these five hindrances and how to help them release if we're going to experience the deepest freedom of heart and mind. So that's just a sneak preview of where all this is heading because often on retreat we hear so much about these five hindrances and we um, don't always recognize that where they're leading is to ease and happiness and freedom. And the first stage of this whole process is really to learn how to recognize and identify the hindrances when they do come up. So the first of the five is usually translated as sensual desire, desire for sense pleasure. Again, it's uh, rooted in the energy of greed that Joseph spoke of on Saturday night. It's the tendency to move towards pleasant experiences, to cling, to hold on, to prolong, to try and enhance them. So it's any kind of chasing after pleasant sights or sounds, smells, tastes, physical sensations, even mental pleasures. And these might, of course, bring some short-term happiness, but because of the truth that everything changes in the long run, clinging to them is a setup for disappointment. And often it gets us into trouble ethically because when we're blinded by greed for something, we stop seeing other people as fellow human beings. We might even relate to them as objects that are getting in the way of our happiness or objects that exist only to make us happy. So this hindrance of sense desire, it covers a whole spectrum of wanting from the most intense addictive craving right through to just the slightest trace of preference. Any kind of movement of the mind towards something. And on retreat, sometimes we see this hindrance coming up quite strongly as a reaction to the simplicity of the retreat container. As I mentioned in the opening talk, we can explore the second precept about not stealing as an invitation to practice contentment, to practice accepting the conditions here as we find them, rather than trying to change them to suit our individual preferences. But sometimes this invitation to let go, to move towards renunciation, has the opposite effect and it stimulates sense desire more strongly. I know for myself at times, finding myself fixating on little things that normally I wouldn't pay that much attention to. So perhaps trying to work out if there are enough brownies for me to have a second one to have with afternoon tea, when normally I don't even have afternoon tea. And then perhaps wondering if maybe I could even have a third one. So just simple things like that. We can train in on retreat, working with these relatively simple, straightforward um, examples of sense desire so that 
when we're out in our daily lives, that muscle is a little stronger for dealing with perhaps bigger challenges. So just a caveat also um, to say that sometimes we can confuse what we want with what we need. And on this retreat, I think our basic needs are mostly pretty well taken care of. And yet somehow, again, speaking for myself, how often our energy goes into just trying to make the external environment a little bit better. That sense of, oh, if only my room was a little bit warmer, then I'd be happy. Or if I didn't have to wait so long for a shower, then I'd be happy. Or if only they'd serve desserts more often, then I'd be happy. Or if only we could have real coffee, then I'd be happy. There's always something that's keeping us just a little off balance. But the moment we can recognize, oh, this is sense desire, right in that moment of recognition, it's a moment of freedom. And there is a caveat here, though, that sometimes when people hear that sense desire is a hindrance, they think, misunderstand that the Buddha is trying to say we should never, uh, never enjoy anything or we should somehow try to avoid pleasant experiences when they do come up. But this is really a misunderstanding. It's not about the pleasant things themselves. It's about our relationship to them. So, for example, to use the basic brownie again, if I can just eat the brownie and be aware of the pleasant tastes and textures and pleasant enjoyment and so on, and then it's finished, it's finished. That's totally fine. On the other hand, if I'm eating the first brownie and looking at the table to see how many are left and how many people are approaching and wondering, well, how many can I take when everyone's gone and am I going to be able to get the recipe at the end of the retreat and all this mental agitation, then that's probably a sign that we've moved into the terrain of hindrance. The other way to check is to notice what happens if when the object of our sense desire goes away or is not available. So if I come into the dining room and see just a plate full of crumbs, or brownie crumbs, what's my response? Is there equanimity or is there moving perhaps into ill will? So, wow, maybe you recognize that one too. So ill will or aversion is the second of these hindrances. And ill will, again, has its roots in the energy of hatred that Joseph spoke of the other night. And it refers to any kind of anger in the mind. Again, a whole spectrum from the most intense rage right through to the slightest trace of irritation. It also includes fear from total terror through to minor anxiety. So it's any kind of pulling away from energetically withdrawing or striking against. And sometimes on retreat, this uh, ill will or aversion can show up in relation to the retreat container. Sometimes we find ourselves resisting the sense of having to follow the schedule, or on the other hand, being afraid of not being able to follow the schedule, or perhaps resenting having to do our yogi jobs or getting irritated with our co-workers or our fellow meditators or the staff or the teachers. Often, very common, shows up in the form of judging mind. Some of you have mentioned this in our group meetings. 
we judge ourselves and we judge our practice and we judge each other and we judge the teachers and we judge anything that moves. And it can be quite shocking sometimes to see just how much mental energy gets absorbed by the judging mind. And then often we get caught in judging the judging. And so it goes, we get into this spiral. So the trick here is to try not to take it personally and if possible to have a sense of humor to know that all of us, I think, are doing this at times. You know, sometimes I wish we could have these kind of thought bubbles. I wish you could have these thought bubbles, not me, <laughs> that are scrolling through and we might actually see all of us at different times are getting caught in these hindrances and they're not our unique shortcomings or failures. So unfortunately, because aversion is so unpleasant, it's pretty easy to get caught in aversion to the aversion. And then we struggle with it, we try to get rid of it, but the resistance just makes it hang around even longer. And then try harder and then that just weakens our mental energy even more. And so then we often find ourselves pushed into the next three hindrances, sloth and torpor, restlessness and remorse and doubt. And these three are all forms of delusion or ignorance. They're different ways of uh, disconnecting from experience or getting distracted. So the third of these is sloth and torpor, old-fashioned English words that refer to basically sleepiness in the body and dullness in the mind. And this hindrance also includes states such as heaviness and sluggishness, apathy, inertia. And again, it's a whole spectrum from total unconsciousness on one end right through to just that slight sense of spaciness or uh, drowsiness. So this word sloth, it has its embodiment too in the animal that's known as the sloth. Some of you might know this creature that uh, I think it's native to South and Central America and it uh, hangs upside down in trees and it's pretty famous for its low metabolism. And I have a good friend who's spent quite a bit of time with these creatures and he told me that they move so slowly that their fur is actually green with algae. <laughs> and not only that, but there are entire species of moths that live in the fur of these animals because they move so slowly. So I haven't noticed any moths in the hall yet, so that's probably a good sign. So unlike the hindrance of aversion, sloth and torpor sometimes is experienced as quite pleasant. So it's just that spacey, dull, drowsy, slightly checked out feeling. So it's important to be on the lookout for it on retreat. And it can sometimes show up too as a kind of a apathy or a habitual tendency to just pull back or retreat in the face of difficulties. So for example, that urge just to go back to bed and pull up the covers whenever something unpleasant comes up in the practice. Any desire to check out or numb out or avoid or disconnect. And sometimes this can masquerade as a kind of self-compassion. Again, speaking uh, from my own experience, that little voice that says, oh, you know, you've worked hard today. 
wouldn't hurt to take just a little nap right now. It'll be good self-care. And sometimes that might be true. But check it out. What happens when we do take a nap? Sometimes the mind might actually be refreshed and brighter. But other times we might actually find ourselves more dull, more disengaged. So we might need to notice, is taking a nap becoming a default strategy? Or is it really um, being used as skillful means? We might also notice, is this for my own welfare? And how about the welfare of others? So imagine if you came here to sit in the hall at 2 o'clock and 98 other people had decided to take a siesta. You'd probably feel quite discouraged if you were sitting here by yourself. This is just one way that we can really support and encourage each other by that willingness to show up. And that showing up is a very powerful antidote to this distraction, this hindrance of sloth and torpor. Often though, with this imbalance of sloth and torpor, when there's low energy and we recognize that, the tendency is to then swing to the other extreme and to try to push ourselves harder. And that energetic forcing, it creates tension in the body and the mind. And then it can take us to the point where suddenly we just feel like we can't bear another minute of sitting in the hall. It's like the body is just so restless and that we want to run screaming from the room. And this is how we get caught by the fourth of these hindrances, which is restlessness and worry. The body is restless, the mind gets caught in jumping from the past to the future, anywhere but the present. And again, like the other hindrances, restlessness and worry has a whole spectrum of intensity, from really extreme agitation to just those little flickerings of anxiety or worry. And on retreat, it sometimes shows up as obsessive thinking, the mind that just keeps looping over and over and over the same thoughts, endlessly trying to resolve a problem that just can't be worked out by thinking alone. And again, if we don't recognize this restlessness and worry, it can often shade over into the final hindrance, which is doubt, skeptical doubt. And this one is pretty seductive and it has many different manifestations. So it can show up as doubt about the teachings or doubt about the teachers or doubt about our own capacity to do the practice. And it's usually referred to as skeptical doubt to distinguish it from uh, a more skillful questioning or inquiry. And the difference is that with inquiry, the questions lead to more clarity and understanding. Whereas with skeptical doubt, the questions just uh, turn into ruminating or what's sometimes known as paralysis by analysis. So for example, on retreat, this sometimes shows up as wondering, well, should I be doing mindfulness of breathing now or metta? Or should I be trying to get more concentrated or more relaxed? Would it be better to do walking meditation now or maybe yoga? And we just keep going round and round and round and we can't decide. And there's one very simple solution for that particular problem. It's just whenever in doubt, come back to mindfulness of the breath. 
because that's always time well spent. So doubt, though, can also show up in as a doubt in our own capacity to do the practice. And we might hear just those little voices that say, well, maybe this has worked for everyone else over the last two and a half thousand years, but I'm uniquely defective and I just don't have what it takes. <laughs> or we might start to doubt the teachers. You know, I still remember the first insight meditation retreat I did many years ago and I'd never been on retreat before and I wasn't sure if I'd chosen the right kind of retreat and if I'd chosen the right teachers, though of course back then I didn't really know what the right teachers might even be, but still you know, I was watching them to see how they walked and how they talked and how they ate. And I noticed that they did everything pretty mindfully, but at that time that wasn't quite enough for me because... I was looking for some kind of inner glow or some kind of aura or some kind of charisma, something a bit more exciting than the capacity to eat lunch mindfully. So I started to wonder, well, who are these people? And what really? I mean, what do they have to offer me? And I was fortunate that I didn't get too carried away by doubt because by the end of the retreat, I realized that actually they had a lot to offer me and that retreat was really a changing point in my whole life. So we can doubt the teachers, we can doubt the teachings we, uh, and the teachings. So we might hear archaic words like sloth and torpor and start to think, you know, this is the 21st century. How can something developed in India 2,600 years ago, I mean, really, how is it going to have any relevance to my life now? And all those numbered lists, the five, this, the eight, that, they really need to come up with a better presentation style. (laughs) So sometimes people confuse doubt, though, with genuine inquiry. But as I said earlier, this inquiry has an energy to it of curiosity and interest and alertness, whereas doubt leads to deadening deadening and... um, undermining and just sort of going round and round in circles without getting anywhere. And at times they can be quite seductive. So it's really worth being on the lookout for that slightly cynical, sophisticated voice that says, what do you think you're doing here really? What is the point of all this? That voice that might tell you that you're being naive or that people think you're weird that you're wasting your time and really you would have been so much better off just taking a nice vacation somewhere warm instead of putting yourself through hell like this. (laughs) So perhaps you recognize some of those voices and again the antidote is to really just recognize it for what it is. Oh, doubt. Doubt feels like this. Or if it's really strong to talk to a teacher or a Dharma friend. Because one of the challenges of this practice is that it is, as the Buddha said, swimming upstream. Often we are going against mainstream values. So it can be challenging to keep orienting towards uh, these three refuges that we talked about the other night. So it's important to try and have regular contact with people who are interested in this practice to to get and to give moral support. And we'll be 
talking more about all of that at the end of the retreat. So for now, just uh, wanted to give you a brief overview of these five hindrances. Just to, um, <clears throat> to name that they're probably, maybe I should check, has anybody not experienced any of these in the first two days? You know, I don't like to make assumptions, but seems like that's probably accurate, that some of you have experienced at least one of these in the last couple of days. And even if you've been doing this for decades, we still are going to be working with these hindrances. But the good news is that they tend to become much less in intensity. They show up less and they don't stick around for as long as they did in the beginning. And if each of you, no matter how long you've been practicing, you might see that over time, at the beginning of your practice, probably spent a lot longer time lost in the hindrances, experienced them with a lot more intensity and a lot more frequent. But over time and with practice, they come less, they stick around for not as long, and there are longer gaps when they're absent. So learning to navigate these hindrances, again, I'm going to steal a phrase from George, to navigate them with grace and ease, learning how to navigate these with grace and ease is really a skill that we're training in on retreat. And the first step of that training is to recognize them. We each need to learn how these hindrances show up for us individually because They will have their own unique signature patterns and flavors, different ways that they manifest for us in the body, in the heart, and the mind. And sometimes I invite people to actually check in with the body and the heart, mind, to notice as a way of staying connected to experience, particularly at those times when we're feeling lost or distracted or have a sneaking feeling that maybe one of the hindrances is present, you can take a kind of quick snapshot and just notice, even right now, what are you aware of in your body? Just to notice any physical sensations. And then the same way to notice, how about the heart-mind? And by heart-mind, I mean thoughts and emotions, moods and mind states. So right now, you might just notice what's present, just to know. And then the third question is one that I think Joseph and George have both referred to. That's, what's the attitude in the mind to my experience right now? How am I relating to this experience Because this third question often reveals the presence of one or more of the hindrances. So is there some kind of wanting? Wanting this experience to continue? Greed. Is there some kind of not wanting? Resisting? Disliking? Ill will or aversion? Or am I disconnected in some way? Lost in sloth and torpor? Or agitated in restlessness and worry? or spinning out in skeptical doubt. So at any moment we can check for these hindrances and sometimes we might notice what's commonly known as a multiple hindrance attack because these things, they're laid out in this nice tidy list one through five but in practice they tend to hunt in packs. So you might find yourself aware of 
there's definitely some kind of hindrance there, but even if you don't know which one, you might just say, okay, multiple hindrance attack. That's also, in that nanosecond of naming it, you're not in the hindrance. So the first step in working with the hindrances is to recognize them, to know when they're present. But but as Joseph and George have both mentioned, mindfulness alone is not enough. Simply recognizing is not enough. We need to be aware of how we're relating to the experience. And this is challenging because especially with the hindrances, we often have a bad attitude towards them. Even the word hindrance can trigger all these beliefs that somehow these are wrong, they're bad, they shouldn't be happening, and I need to get rid of them as quickly as possible. And while it's true that we definitely don't want to be feeding these states, if we react to them with that kind of attitude, then we're actually just reinforcing aversion. So it's kind of an Aikido move to meet the energy of the hindrances with kind curiosity rather than resistance in a way to kind of befriend them, to get to know them without disconnecting but also without feeding Because if we can relate to the hindrances skillfully, rather than being obstacles to our practice, they can become vehicles that help us to progress along the path. So there's a a training slogan that I found a few years ago that's been so helpful in my own practice, and I've shared it with some of you. Uh, It says, if it's in the way, it is the way. If it's in the way, it is the way. And it can really shed light on all of those things that we think are problems that we're actually resisting. So for example, if only I wasn't getting so caught up in fantasies, then I'd be able to practice. If only that jerk would stop doing whatever he's doing to annoy me, then I'd be able to practice. If only I could stop obsessing about that deadline at work next week, then I'd be able to practice. And in each of those examples, what this slogan is asking us to do is to turn and look directly at whatever we think is the problem and fold that into our mindful awareness. But so often we do the opposite of try to ignore, deny, or unconsciously feed the hindrance. And this is because we have that such a common tendency to identify with them and to think, see them as reflections of our own shortcomings in some way. So again, uh, it was very helpful for me to hear or read the English Dharma teacher Rob Berbea talk about the, mani- the um, five hindrances as manifestations of our humanity. And you might hear there's a very different flavor if we think of the hindrances not so much as hindrances, but as manifestations of our humanity. So sometimes when I share that, people will tell me in the meetings, wow, I was manifesting so much humanity this morning. (laughs) And it's just a very different relationship to that experience. And bringing humor to it really helps to lighten it, helps to depersonalize it. So this... uh, Anything that helps us to meet these 
uh, hindrances with as little identification as possible is a really beneficial strategy. So just as we might notice physical sensations in the body, knee pain or back pain, or thoughts passing through the mind, we just see the hindrances as impersonal phenomena arising due to conditions and eventually passing due to conditions. Not I, not me, not mine, not who I am. And this non-reactive, non-identifying approach is actually exactly how the, we're instructed to relate to the hindrances in the Satipatthana Sutta. So I'd like to read you uh, just part of that text now so you can hear almost a scientific kind of observation. And this same passage is, re- is repeated in relation to all the hindrances, but I'll just re- read you the one for sense desire. It says, Here, meditators, while sense desire is present in one, a meditator knows there is sense desire present in me. Or, while sense desire is not present in one, one knows there is no sense desire present in me. One also knows how the sense desire which has not yet arisen comes to arise. One knows how the sense desire that has arisen comes to be discarded. And one knows how the discarded sense desire will not arise in the future. Now there's a lot in that passage, but the main thing is to notice uh, a piece of this instruction that I think is often overlooked, and that's to notice when the hindrance is not present. And for many of us, this is quite counterintuitive because we have actually biological hardwiring to be on the alert for problems and to give more weight to what's unpleasant than to what's pleasant. So we often have this unconscious tendency to fixate on what we think is wrong with our practice, what the problems are, and to actually ignore or not even register those times when the hindrances might be absent. There's a second challenge here, at least one I've noticed in my own practice, uh, especially early on, that in some perverse way, the mind actually enjoys struggling with these hindrances because at least it gives us something to do. You know, we're so habituated to wanting to be productive and to achieve things and we come on retreat and like, oh, at least I can wrestle with my hindrances. (laughs) So for many of us, when the hindrances do dissolve, do release, and we find ourselves uh, in the terrain of more subtle and skillful mind states, such as calmness or equanimity, sometimes these are an acquired taste, and we actually have to train ourselves to get used to them. But with this instruction from the Satipatthana Sutta, we're really encouraged to recognize when the mind is free of hindrances, and to get used to that, so that over time the mind quite naturally inclines there. So again, because of this negativity bias, though we do tend to uh, just let the pleasant experiences slide right off and to grip on to the difficulties. So most of you know Rick Hansen's famous statement that our minds are like Velcro for what's unpleasant and Teflon for what's pleasant. 
So sometimes when we're in this terrain, when the hindrances are weakened, we can almost experience what I think of as hindrance nostalgia, the good old days when we had something to wrestle with. And it can be a little bit disconcerting when all of these have gone away. Sometimes it can even feel like we've lost our mindfulness because the hindrances are kind of coarse or obvious and uh, they're usually pretty, um, they can be quite clear to notice. And then when they've gone, what's left is harder to pay attention to because it's more subtle and more refined. And sometimes there's a gap, our mindfulness hasn't quite refined enough to be able to notice these states of, say, equanimity or tranquility or curiosity or interest or calm or confidence and so on. We might also begin to notice when we're in this more refined terrain how often we're unconsciously addicted to drama, to the highs and lows of life. And this mid-range can at times feel quite threatening because we're so used to intensity and perhaps even afraid of a more nuanced or subtle range of experiences. And sometimes we find ourselves feeling, well, nothing's happening. What am I supposed to do now? And we get into some familiar patterns of pushing or forcing, trying to make something happen. And again, because mainstream society is always conditioning us in this way, it's not surprising that when the mind is free of um, these five hindrances, we might not know quite what to do with ourselves. So there can be at times a discomfort with this, what um, we can think of it as a transition phase or perhaps a metamorphosis. It's almost like being adolescent again and we have that awkward phase of puberty when we're not quite one thing and we're not quite the other. Or perhaps more poetically, the kind of metamorphosis of a caterpillar to a butterfly. When the butterfly first emerges from the cocoon, it needs to rest and to allow the soft structure of its wings to harden so it can fly. So sometimes we find ourselves on this path to awakening in phases that feel maybe more groundlessness, uh, more groundless or um, unfamiliar. And so a few years ago, I was interested to read that in uh, the Tibetan tradition, the word that's usually translated as meditation more literally means getting used to it. And I feel like this is useful on many different ways. We can think of this practice of getting used to different terrain. So metaphorically, sometimes the journey takes us through jungle. Sometimes it takes us along the beach or up a snowy mountainside or sometimes in swamp. And we need to learn how to navigate all these different kinds of terrain. Until eventually we have the skill to navigate all of these different terrains with more and more ease. And this is the freedom that all of this path is pointing to. So as the hindrances uh, release, there's literally more space in the heart and the mind for skillful qualities such as the Brahma-viharas and the awakening factors. There's more room for them to start to grow. 
So again, we have this metaphor of cultivation. And I hope that this overview of what, what happens as the hindrances start to release might really inspire some sense of uh, possibility about where all of this practice is leading. So I'd like to close with just one more passage from the suttas, one that's attributed to the Buddha. So as you listen, you might like to imagine that the Buddha is speaking directly to you, because in a way, he is. Just uh, take in these words as best you can. He says, Abandon what is unskillful, practitioners. It is possible to abandon what is unskillful. If it were not possible to abandon what is unskillful, I wouldn't say to you, Abandon what is unskillful. But because it is possible, I say to you, abandon what is unskillful. If this abandoning of what is unskillful were conducive to harm and pain, I would not say to you, abandon what is unskillful. But because this abandoning of what is unskillful is conducive to benefit and pleasure, I say to you, abandon what is unskillful. Develop what is skillful, practitioners. It is possible to develop what is skillful. If it were not possible to develop what is skillful, I wouldn't say to you, develop what is skillful. But because it is possible, I say to you, develop what is skillful. If this development of what is skillful were conducive to harm and pain, I would not say to you, develop what is skillful. But because this development of what is skillful is conducive to benefit and pleasure, I say to you, develop what is skillful. So may our efforts here on this retreat help us to develop what's conducive to benefit and pleasure so that we might experience the deepest freedom of heart and mind. Thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment.